Um, the last 10 years have witnessed decline in the state of civil society in every part of the world. In spite of the fact that the important role of civil society in guarding democracy, in protecting human rights, and ensuring equitable development is widely recognized, government continues imposing restrictive measures on, this, on the work of civil society. Citizens, activists, journalists, writers, um, uh, reporter organizations are subjected to all forms of harassment, intimidation, and vilification. Measures could be worse, leading to life imprisonment. Reports talk of um, non-state actors' mobilization to target and assassinate activists and dissent voices. In some cases, civil society actors are demonized and labeled as foreign agents, anti-development, anti-national, and terrorists. This alarming rise in restriction on civil society has been witnessed in authoritarian regimes and democracies. Recent events and instances suggest this trend may unfortunately remain in place for the coming years. The fear of foreign interference and the fear of being held accountable as well as the need to consolidate power domestically has led government to put constraints on foreign funding, barriers to registration, and sometimes interfering in the internal affairs of these organizations. Over 100 laws were enacted barring civil society access to national and foreign financial resources, cutting the lifeline for civil society organizations. As these restrictive measures have multiplied, all stakeholders have started to take part in a worldwide debate on how to build the resilience and sustainability of civil society. We at CSIS, the Human Rights Initiative, have engaged in research on how best to address and push back on closing civic space for the last couple of years. We established the International Consortium on Closing Civic Space, or ICON, composed of 25 experts and practitioners with the objective of developing evidence-based solution that enhance the resilience and sustainability of civil society. The reports of today's focus are published through this consortium. We are delighted to have our distinguished panelists, Mariam Afersabi and the authors of the two reports, Shannon Green and Edwin Rekosh. We will examine with our panelists the implication of closing civic space being in part driven and exaggerated by a dominant programmatic model in which civil society organizations are grant dependent. We will also explore current programmatic models and different ways of funding the work of civil society that make the sector more resilient. Before we start our program, let me briefly introduce our speakers. On my right, I have Edwin Rekosh, is the director of the Human Rights Initiative and visiting professor of law at Cardoso School of Law in New York City. In that capacity, he's overseeing the overall growth of human rights program, including the development of Human Rights Forward Initiative that creates new solutions for combating suppression of civil society groups and advancing human rights. 
Ed has pioneered innovative human rights initiatives in China and over 30 other countries in Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America. He's a graduate of Cornell University and Columbia Law School, and he received the American Bar Association International Human Rights Award in 2009. On his right, we have Shannon Green, who is the senior, currently the senior director of program at the Center for Civilians in Conflict, CIVIC. She brings deep experience in international development, human rights, violence prevention for 15 years in the US government, academia, and the nonprofit sector. You know Shannon and her previous capacity as a senior fellow and director of the Human Rights Initiative here at CSIS, where she spearheaded our work on closing civic space. Prior to joining CSIS, Shannon was the senior director for global engagement on the National Security Council. In that role, she developed and coordinated policies, initiatives to deepen and broaden US engagement with critical population overseas, including spearheading President Obama's stand with civil society agenda and young leader initiatives around the world. Shannon received her MA in international peace and conflict resolution from American University. On her right, uh, we have Mariama Persabi, who is a senior civil society advisor in the civil society and media division at USAID Center of Excellence on Democracy, Human Rights, and Governance. Mariam is one of the agency key points of contact on policy and implementation of programming closing closed civic and political spaces. She manages the Civil Society Organization Sustainability Index in Sub-Saharan Africa, MENA, and Asia, overseeing the development of the report for over 40 countries, as well as the Civil Society Innovation Initiative, a flagship program aiming to launch civil society innovation hubs globally. Mariam attained her Master's of Arts degree in international relations at Syracuse University Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. Um, just a point, can we silence our mobile, please? Thank you very much. So we have tremendous experience and knowledge in this panel. With that and without, any, uh, without further ado, let me start with you, Ed. Okay. Thank you very much. So I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, and uh, just as a word of warning, uh, we're, we're each speaking for relatively short periods of time. I'm going to try to keep it to 15 minutes, and I'm the first to go. So I'm going to keep it pretty general. I'm sure we're going to be going into a lot of details, uh, but I thought that uh, the best thing that I could do at the outset is to go through, go through, oops, okay, go through uh, some of the, uh, some of the ideas that uh, were part of my own journey trying to figure out how to deal with the emerging threat that uh, many of us observed uh, two or three years ago. And um, it's not a very orthodox journey, so I think it take, it, it's worth taking a little time to walk you through where my thinking came from. This is basically the conceptual framework that I used for the report that CSIS has, CSIS has published, I think it was in June. Uh, called Rethinking the Human Rights Business Model. Business model. And uh, that came out of my own frustration and uh, desperation, perhaps, uh, at looking at uh, my own work for a couple of decades in helping to build civil society organizations, particularly civil society organizations focusing on human rights, 
uh, starting in Eastern Europe, but then elsewhere in the world. So that, that's, that's, what I, that's where I was coming from. I, was, uh, I, I, uh, I had a formative experience in the early 1990s uh, in Romania, living and working in Romania, uh, in the, uh, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I was part, as probably other people in this room were as well, of a whole uh, global initiative to build civil society. And um, that, uh, I, I won't belabor this because I think it's familiar ground for a lot of people here, but uh, let me just reference it at the outset. Uh, uh, human, human rights, which is the vantage point I'm coming from, is basically a 70-year story. And uh, one way to look at it, if, especially if you're looking at it from a development lens, which I think many of us are, is as a project. It was a 70-year project, or is a 70-year project so far, of first of all, uh, interna building international norms. That's a story that uh, we all know, and I won't detail, but there's a lot of treaty law, and uh, that's that, uh, a lot of institutions and international mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I mean by the normative part of the project. And then there's also been a massive infrastructure project that built on that. And that started with some well-known NGOs, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, as well as well-known human rights NGOs in the global south, like CELS and Legal Resources Center in South Africa. Uh, but it grew, it mushroomed. And that experience I was referencing at the beginning when I was in Romania in the early 1990s was part of that whole process. And so, that, so uh, then we have closing space issues starting to emerge, which I won't detail either, um, but I think uh, the audience is probably generally aware of. And so here I am thinking to myself, um, what's, what is the, the nature of this new threat and what's to be done about it? And uh, there are many, many things that many people are doing, but personally, I felt like there's a threat to the basic model. That whole project seemed to me to be a threat. And so I started to look for alternatives. And that led me uh, very much outside my own direct professional experience to look at business, business uh, models for lack of a better word. And I came across this uh, little tool called the Business Model Canvas, which was designed by an Austrian professor named Osterwalder. And I, that's what I want to present to you today. And I won't have time to go into much more detail than just presenting this to you, because I'm already taking up a lot of time. But uh, this is what it looks like. And I'll try, what I'll try to do is illustrate how it fits. Okay, but basically, uh, uh, this is how a business this is used for, for business innovation and business strategy, principally. This is how a business uh, figures out what it does and how it should do it uh, at either a startup level or at a strategy level for a larger company. For example, uh, Google, Google's business model could be illustrated this way, as it is in the book by Osterwalder uh, on, on, on uh, Business Model Canvas. And um, you see there, I won't, I won't go into detail about this, but you can see basically that this canvas allows you to visualize what a model is, right? There's targeted, there's value propositions in the middle, targeted ads, free search, monetizing content. Two of them are free, one of them's paid. That's, that's that, in essence, that's the Google business model. So I tried to take this and think through, well, what does that mean for civil society organizations? And um, this is my very, very amateurish, amateurish <laughs> but quite authentic <laughs> diagram that I did uh, this morning in my hotel room. And um, I want to talk about this for a little bit. 
because this basically, I think, helps you to visualize uh, what the problem is. Uh, there is a very, very standard business model for most NGOs. I was talking about the human rights uh, kind of uh, field, but as we know, uh, development also relies on NGOs to a great deal. And so basically development NGOs and human rights NGOs are in the same boat. And their business models look similarly. That's why I put advocacy and services there as a value proposition. A normal business model, of course, would be much, much more specific than this. So I'm generalizing. And you could have other kinds of value propositions too. Uh, policy for reform on pro-poor policies or economic empowerment or many other things. But I just uh, selected one general category, advocacy and services. And you see in blue, I've tried to map the relationships. So it's advocacy and services for when one particular segment of beneficiaries is vulnerable and marginalized groups. There's others too, disenfranchised rights holders and others. But I just tried to simplify it so I could illustrate my point. So two caveats. Uh, I know, I'll get to that in a second. The green, the green represents the flow of funds. And not only the flow of funds, but you see in key resources, there's a key problem there. Uh, what, what are the key resources for most local NGOs? Well, there's local knowledge and relationships. That's extremely important. And I, and I, I put a blue box around that because that's local. Outside knowledge and transactional networks are by definition uh, from outside the country, so I gave it green. Okay, so the green relationships are outside the country, the blue relationships are inside the country. That's a fundamental issue. Uh, that, that creates a fundamental vulnerability for NGOs. Now, a couple of caveats. Uh, one caveat is uh, the, we're talking about civil society sustainability today. Civil society does not equal NGOs. However, if you're looking at it from a development lens, if you're thinking about development, what, you know, what people call sometimes development interventions, which it might not be a great word to use today, but uh, development interventions in that technical sense, they rely, they, you can't have an intervention to create a movement. Uh, generally, you can't, or you can't legitimately have one to create a movement, let's put it that way. Um, I'm thinking about certain things in the news this week. But uh, you, can't, you can't have a legitimate development intervention that's designed to create a movement. You can create organizations. That's, and that's so most development activities are focused on organizations. That's why we focus on NGOs, even though we know very well that NGOs and civil society are not the same thing. So this model focuses on, um, on NGOs because you can't really use this model for, for more authentic kinds of civil society very easily. Although maybe we'll talk about uh, I hope we're going to be starting to talk about how you might do that. Uh, a second caveat is that business models don't really work for charitable organizations. That's why I had to write beneficiaries under cu customer segments. And uh, basically, this, this problem that I'm mapping out in this diagram would be true for any NGO, including any nonprofit in the United States, meaning there might be a disconnect from who's paying for the service from who's receiving the benefit of the service. In pure commercial activity, there's no, dis there's no real disconnect. The customers are paying for your service. So that's, uh, that's another uh, caveat I just wanted to mention. Um, I think I'll move on now, but now, now that I've kind of illustrated that conceptual point, and just very quickly uh, talk about, uh, uh, in very, very broad outline, where I started looking. I started looking 
for uh, using this template, I started to look for where are the alternatives. If we're not going to be an NGO that is receiving grants from foreign charitable institutions, what might we be? And I started looking at things like the revenue streams and uh, the, the, uh, the uh, customer channels or beneficiary relationships, key partners and platforms and cost structures. Uh, I don't really have time to detail that, but to give you an example, uh, technological platforms, open source platforms, give you a lot of opportunities to do things that you wouldn't be, that you don't necessarily need a foreign grant in order to do. Same with cost structures by using volunteers and so on. And I don't really want to spend, I, I could spend a lot of time on that, but I don't really want to do that now because I'd like to get to the next presentations and the discussion. But I'll just end on this. Um, what I discovered along the way is not just that this is a workaround, not just that we need to work around the best model. You know, the best model is let's give grants to a lot of NGOs and have them flourish and mushroom all over the world. Uh, that's not, I, 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 that, that is not my finding. My finding is that is probably not the best model. There are many other good models, and in fact, there are huge opportunities we can exploit to promote those models. And those trends include social entrepreneurship and impact investment, which is huge. Uh, social entrepreneurship might be based on charitable funding to a degree, but it's also based on commercial revenue and on impact investors. Business with purpose is a huge trend that uh, is generational in nature, connected to the millennial generation point that I made later. But uh, as we know, young people who can do a better job drawing those slides than I did uh, uh, think differently about their careers than I was taught when I was in law school. They, they, they think about having a, a, a career for purpose. And they, they want to work for businesses with purpose. That's a very, very important trend. And, sec and thirdly, of course, is a technological change. And uh, I won't belabor that because I think it's an obvious point. There's so many opportunities that don't necessarily require the old models of building an organization. Well, thank you, Ed. You cover all the grounds. And that gives us a good place to move to Shannon, where I would like to explore with you the what are the available options for CSOs um, to diversify their funding uh, sources? And what are the positive and negative aspects of each option you're uh, Great. So my research very much picked up where Ed's left off. Um, so I benefited tremendously from some of the conceptual framing that he did. And just, you know, first to say that the human rights sector is experiencing a crisis in terms of this dominant business model, both because of the pressure that governments are putting on them, um, what we call closing space for civil society, the fact that a lot of governments have become very adept at cutting off those foreign sources of funding, leaving a lot of organizations really hanging out there without any reliable revenue streams, but also because of this disconnect that Ed illustrated, some human rights organizations are facing a crisis of legitimacy or credibility within their own societies. And I think what's important to point out is that this crisis has created both a lot of challenges for human rights organizations that are trying to weather this moment and sustain themselves. But it's also an opportunity, I think, for organizations and donors and others that support civil society to think anew about what does a more resilient civil society sector look like. So what I tried to do was think about some of the other organizational models that are being deployed by civil society organizations 
and then to try to understand what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of those models in terms of the organization's sustainability or resilience. I prefer resilience in this case because not all organizations should be sustainable in the sense that they should last forever. There might not be a business case or a value proposition that requires the organization to exist forever into the future, um, but there might be, right? So I like to think of it more as you know, not having an untimely or early death because of these exogenous factors, and therefore what allows organizations to be resilient in the face of this change. So I looked at a couple of different types of organizations. I think they could be grouped differently, but mostly these were grouped by revenue stream, um, and it's all in the report. But um, namely, they were membership-based organizations, including those in which members pay dues and those in which they do not, um, in order to participate and be full members of those organizations. Two, community-funded organizations or organizations that primarily get their revenues from domestic sources, and that could include community foundations to organizations that have made a concerted effort to do local fundraising. And then finally, market-driven organizations, which includes a range of organizations in, like social enterprises, investment organizations, revenue-generating organizations, and commission-based organizations. So overall, when I looked at these three different typologies, I found that what membership-based, community-funded, and market-driven organizations lacked in terms of their formality and capacity, they more than made up for in terms of their ability to adapt to legal and regulatory changes, foreign policy shifts, and the other things that are endangering grant-dependent organizations, and they were much more capable of building ties to local constituencies. So real quick, I think we'll go through each model and talk about some of the pros and cons, and then hopefully we'll have time to explore this further in the Q&A. So membership-based um, organizations in particular were well-positioned to withstand significant changes in the environment because they have a built-in constituency, which is their members. They have a reliable revenue stream in the case of organizations that collect dues or fees. And they wield a significant amount of influence if they are large and powerful enough or connected enough into um, the pockets of power. And because they're accountable both inward to their members as well as outward to their constituencies, they're more able to adapt and meet the needs and expectations and aspirations of their members. So obviously this kind of flexibility is critical in closed and closing environments because governments can apply some of the same tactics that they use against formalized NGOs, such as they can't cut off their foreign funding. They're not getting foreign funding in many cases. They can't threaten deregulation or deregistration where they're not registered. Um, and for the most part, it would be harder to expose them to lengthy politicized audits. <clears throat> now, this approach is not without risk. Governments are increasingly alarmed by the prospect of mass mobilization. Um, and are resorting to draconian measures to curtail it. So particularly in a space that is you know, very closed or highly repressive, even membership-based organizations are gonna face significant challenges being able to overtly lobby for transformational change or even sort of organize their membership in any concerted way. So that brings us to community-funded organizations, um, which like I said, rely on domestic revenue streams Community-funded organizations, as you can imagine, 
have the inherent benefit of being able to gain community buy-in and funding for their projects and priorities because those priorities are set by the communities themselves. They're harder for the government to disrupt because by and large they sort of operate under the radar screen and they're not seen as serving a foreign agenda because they're closely kind of tied into and embedded in their community. Um, and they get money from locals. So it's harder for the government to say, you don't represent you know, what this country is about, or you're standing in the way of progress, or you're just a shill for the United States or some other Western power, because it's locals that are saying, we believe in this organization, we think it has value to us, and we're willing to pay for it. There have been multiple surveys and survey experiments showing that people are willing to give to human rights organizations if only they're asked in the right way. The problem is most people are never asked. Human rights organizations typically haven't made it a priority to get funding from local sources. So there is a lot of promise, I think, to this model, but the problem is that local funding is not likely to replace um, foreign funding anytime soon. Substantial funding, primarily from northern sources, requ is required to carry out most of civil society's work. So, for example, there is the Arab Human Rights Fund, um, which was created with the intention of fostering local giving for human rights work. More than a decade later, external funding is still required um, to keep that fund going and remains the principal source of revenue. Um, there are other constraints to applying this model across the board. Citizens may fear retribution from repressive governments if they make contributions to such organizations. There might also be legal constraints that infringe on those organizations' abilities to do local fundraising. So for example, in Morocco and Oman, soliciting for funding is illegal unless you have a certain, um, unless you're categorized as a certain kind of NGO. So even if they wanted to raise resources domestically, they couldn't. Moreover, in some environments, wealthy individuals are closely tied into the government, um, and they benefit from this relationship they have with the government, and they're not likely to endanger that by supporting an organization that does not curry the government's favor. So finally, that brings us to market-driven organizations. Um, market-driven organizations, the essential attribute of them is that they generate all or part of their resources from out of their own activities, and then they use those resources to contribute to social change. These models have a lot of attributes that make them more resilient to closing space. For one, their revenue is generated from their customers or clients, and so government can't come in and say, we're not gonna allow you to get this foreign funding anymore, because that's not how they're based. Um, also, they're less vulnerable to fluctuations in foreign policy or donors' preferences because, again, that's not where they're getting their funding from. The challenge for market-based organizations is the question of whether they can really be applied to the deep structural challenges that human rights organizations are set up to deal with. Um, unlike service delivery organizations, Human rights organizations are about long, deep change, and sometimes the business model or the market-driven organizations perhaps aren't the right fit for that kind of problem set. So overall, um, I would say that there's no such thing as an ideal organizational type. There are different forms that organizations can experiment with. 
they might need to do some mixing and matching, but I think the important thing is that in this moment, we really start to take a hard look at what some of these options are, and that donors work with civil society organizations to help diversify their funding streams and make sure that they're helping think through with the partner organizations that they support how to sort of adapt their organizational models and revenue streams for this new environment. Thank you, Shannon. Um, you laid all the grounds on this. Um, can I have a quick follow-up here? Yep. And um, I would like to get your views on what constraints will CSOs face in adopting these approaches that you suggested, and how can these barriers be overcome quickly? Yeah, so hopefully this is something that we can all talk about. Um, I think one challenge is once you're set up in a certain way, adapting and sort of adopting a different organizational form is very difficult um, because it's just it's just the foundation on which you're built is not built that way so some organizations have sort of spun off different types so like you would have um, oxfam for example you know has its normal ngo but then it also has oxfam stores and they sell things in those stores and then the revenue is then pushed into the nonprofit organization. That's how some are overcoming this challenge of not being able to fully adopt the sort of core organization. I think <clears throat> the other challenge is just, um, this is the way that has been <laughs> for a couple of decades and it's really hard to think differently and think about how to deal with a problem set like human rights using one of these organizational forms. And then finally, like I mentioned, with membership-based organizations or community-funded organizations, you know, you have to make the case to people within that society that it's worth their money, their time, their energy to invest in these organizations. And so you have to have a strong value proposition. Um, and I don't think that we, as a human rights sector, have spent enough time kind of at that grassroots level trying to cultivate that kind of support and that is gonna take a lot of time and energy, time and energy that a lot of organizations don't have. Yeah. Thank you, Shannon. Um, Mariam, Ed and Shannon talked about the civil society uh, business model and how they are adopting and adapting to uh, various um, restrictions and um, sub, uh, repressive measures. I would like to have your views uh, from a donor perspective on how does the donor community respond to the trend of closing civic space and how does, the, uh, how does it adapt while striking the right balance uh, of uh, sustaining partner CSOs and responding to its own priority and its own internal uh, regulations at the same time. Well, thank you so much, Lana, for the opportunity to speak at this event and to CSIS's Human Rights Initiative and to ICON for addressing these important topics of closing civic space and civil society sustainability. So USAID's administrator, Mark Green, has stated his vision for the agency and the purpose of foreign assistance to be ending its need to exist, that each of our programs should look forward to the day when it can end. So for USAID, the concept of sustainability of our programs and of our partners continues to be at the forefront of how we design programs, how they're implemented, and how we measure impact. We've been asked by the administrator to look at every program we've got, every investment we make, and measure ourselves by how we can move a country closer to that day when they can take over these programs for themselves. 
So however, the administrator recognizes that this is, of course, no easy feat. The challenges of donor funding models, um, as described in Shannon's recent report, including the creation of grant and donor dependencies and of CSOs being accused of being illegitimate, out of touch, and only in the sector for money or prestige, i.e. the perception of, by some beneficiary communities and <clears throat> government actors of a marketization of foreign assistance all lead to a negative public image of CSOs and can be utilized by state actors to rationalize the closing of civic and political space. So CSOs have certainly been adaptive, resilient, and creative in finding ways to carry forward activities even when civic space is closing, but donors seem to be falling behind. Our own reliance on government funding cycles, bureaucratic processes, reporting structures, an almost obsession with PMEPs, performance marketing evaluation plans, numbers, indicators, and at times old-fashioned procurement modalities can disable us from reacting quickly and experimenting with new programming approaches and partnerships and funding structures. The donor community recognizes this, and at USAID we've been moving towards changing changes to make ourselves more flexible, agile, and adaptive to the changing needs of our partners and local beneficiaries in an effort to better balance contributing to the sustainability of partner CSOs, but also responding to our own internal regulations. USAID has launched several important policies, guidance documents, and initiatives in the past to try to improve our work with civil society, address power imbalances between donors and civil society to the extent possible, and enhance civil society sustainability. In 2010, USAID launched its USAID Forward Reforms that included Implementation and Procurement Reform, IPR, and an objective focused on strengthening civil society and private sector actors. While this objective is most known for its effort to shift more funding directly to local partners, it did also refocus attention on strengthening the capacity of local partners and on the concept of sustainability. It's fair to say, however, that there was a tendency to focus heavily on the direct funding targets, and it isn't clear how well we may have done in the other areas. USAID's 2014 local systems framework then helped move the focus to the bigger picture, so namely the systems in which the CSOs operate. This framework played an important role in encouraging USAID officers to focus on systems and relationships among actors and not just the actors themselves. And then the recent revision of Automated Directive Systems ADS-201 on the program cycle included a critical component focused on local ownership and sustainability. However, as an agency, we realized that more is needed. This is not an overnight change, and it will take time, as it requires not just process changes, but changing the organizational culture and mindsets around things like monitoring, evaluation, and learning, and procurement, and matching programming needs for partners in closing space with novel and unprecedented services. As our CSO partners are experimenting with different organizational forms, revenue streams, and partnerships to fortify their operations, we as donors are also experimenting, piloting, and scaling up efforts to match these, lands these changing landscapes. I'll walk us through now four key ways that we're actively working to better contribute CSO sustainability. First, USAID is experimenting with a new program design um, instruments to maximize participation by the widest array of civil society partners through processes such as co-creation, broad agency announcements, broad mission announcements, and grand challenges. These approaches allow us to expand beyond working with quote-unquote traditional USAID partners by bringing in the voices of less formal CSO actors, including social movement actors and individual activists, as well as other donors, including philanthropic foundations and the private sector in the design process. 
It also allows us to be less directive than a typical request for proposals or request for applications, as the purpose of co-creation is to bring in the expertise of everyone in the room, regardless if you're a donor, a government actor, a private sector representative, an NGO, or an informal CSO actor, to collectively reflect on not only the potential solutions, but to actually come to consensus upon the challenge or the problem itself, without making presumption or assumptions by the donor community on what that is. This has been helpful in generating innovative, outside-the-box approaches and new, at times, atypical partnerships that directly contribute to civil society resilience. An example of this is the intensive co-creation process that the agency undertook alongside the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, CEDA, private philanthropic organizations, and hundreds of local CSOs um, as a part of the Civil Society Innovation Initiative, CSII. It included a series of co-creation workshops in six different regions of the world, followed by additional regional and country-level consultations that were led and driven by civil society itself. Co-creation enabled the donors to work with a truly diverse array of CSO actors and better ensure that the initiative can drive towards sustainability from the onset as it is rooted by the individuals who helped to build it. This local ownership of the process resulted in the establishment of a viable network that now has over 750 local CSOs working with it and among it from open to closing and closed spaces. Second, USAID is experimenting with new models of monitoring and evaluation and capturing learning that is directly responsive to programming needs and contexts that are not static. To break away from what are sometimes seen as unrealistic or rigid demands for results and numbers. USA's Global Development Lab and the Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning have been developing innovative approaches to capture learning, including an agency-wide focus on collaborating learning and adapting CLA, which covers concepts such as continuous learning and improvements, an iterative approach at looking at relationships and networks, and adaptive management. USAID's MERLIN program, for example, which stands for Monitoring, Evaluation, Research, and Learning Innovations, is a radically different approach to program design for USAID and its partners that allows us to source, co-create, and co-design development solutions that innovate on traditional approaches to monitoring and evaluation, research, and learning. While standard approaches to monitoring and evaluation, M&E, work well for many USAID projects, when specific outputs and outcomes are not easily identifiable upfront, and where change might not happen in a linear fashion, these standard tools can fall short. This is especially true for projects operating in highly complex environments, including enclosing spaces, where the best approach to the development problem, problem is not well recognized, and project managers must adapt the project design over the course of the project. Additionally, various operating units, including my own, are testing somewhat novel MEL approaches in programming, such as the use of a process historian and development evaluation, which enables CSOs to function as social innovators, is particularly suited to, again, complex or uncertain environments, such as closing space, and among other criteria, centers accountability on our partners' values and commitments, rather than focusing it on external authorities and funders' explicit and preset criteria. These more innovative MEL approaches can decrease unnecessary pressure on local actors, help reframe donor satisfaction so that it is not in competition with broader CSO goals, and again, enables flexibility, especially in restrictive environments. 
Third, there's a recognition in the donor community that the definition of civil society sustainability and civil society itself has and continues to evolve alongside changes over time in the civil society landscape. Donors are actively looking at ways to engage a broader array of actors as both partners and beneficiaries to include more traditional actors, but also informal actors, including online groups and activities, many organized around social media, social movements, and social entrepreneurs. Engaging with these actors, of course, can be challenging for donors, as although they can be organized for intentional purposes many times, they have not undergone formal registration processes, may not have a clear hierarchy or a leader, and may not have other standard structures in place that ease collaboration and technical and fiduciary oversight, which of course, as donors, we love, such as bank accounts, physical spaces, or financial or program management interfaces. Additionally, direct linkages with donors are sometimes undesirable and may be seen as damaging these entities' legitimacy with their communities and their constituents. USA continues to invest in research and new programming to identify and test ways to provide support to these important actors when it is requested, including technical support such as helping to strengthen the digital security of their online communities, connecting and networking less formal actors with more traditional civil society to help build bridges in the advocacy space, as well as in-kind and at times financial support. Finally, we're working with our local CSO partners to experiment with innovative approaches to closing space, including measures to combat challenges such as restrictions to the legal enabling environment, administrative impediments, and curtailments in digital security, as well as proactive measures, including the development of community philanthropy, the use of technology and innovation to create openings, the creation of analytics that can be used for data-driven CSO advocacy, and connecting actors across open to closing space and cross-regionally. As we understand that approaches in working and closing space cannot be one-size-fits-all and must be region and context-specific, we are further working to refine a menu of options approach. These programs further contribute to CSO sustainability by reducing some of the impediments to CSO operations and helping to equip civil society with data for advocacy, new tools, and access to potential new revenue streams. So as an example, I'm happy to report that our legal enabling environment project, for example, has been extremely successful in preventing the issuance of restrictive laws, policies, and regulations. Just last year, LEAP support provided direct technical assistance in 17 countries, and due to its intervention, laws or regulations were improved in Congo, Brazzaville, Cote d'Ivoire, Somalia, and Kosovo. The effects of restrictive laws or draft laws were mitigated in Indonesia, Moldova, and Nigeria, and the initiative helped empower CSOs and civil society in numerous countries, including Cambodia. Another tool that we support, which is directly relevant to today's discussion, is the Civil Society Organization Sustainability Index, CSOSI, that reports on the strength and overall viability of the civil society sector in over 70 countries globally, um, and it covers Sub-Saharan Africa, Europe and Eurasia, the Middle East, and Asia. It's based not only on financial viability as uh, an equivalent to civil society sustainability, but in an additional seven key dimensions, which include the legal environment, organizational capacity, advocacy, service provision, infrastructure, and public image. USAID is in the process of making improvements to both processes and analytics to ensure that the index can best reflect today's civil society sector and is taking into consideration various working definitions of both civil society and civil society sustainability, such as those by civicists and thought leaders in this space, such as the West African Civil Society Institute's Charles Van Dyke. 
We're also working on cultivating domestic philanthropy abroad. The Aga Khan Foundation, along with USAID, as well as the Mott Foundation, Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and the Inter-American Foundation have joined together in the Global Alliance for Community Philanthropy, strategically leveraging local assets that can help address some of the power imbalances that frequently emerge within the context of traditional aid, which is essential for enhancing the sustainability of our development efforts and ensuring local ownership. We also believe in the power of investing in innovation and technology to help open civic space and enhance CSO sustainability. So for example, the CSII initiative that I mentioned earlier aims to launch six different civil society innovation centers globally that support the work of civil society actors, amplify their voices, and develop innovative approaches that expand the reach and impact of civic activism. So using innovative uh, innovation methodologies such as design thinking, innovation labs, and tech hackathons, these hubs are piloting novel approaches to tackle issues such as resource um, scarcity in the Latin America and Caribbean region through the development of um, a web platform called communidas.org. It's the region's first digital sharing economy platform for civil society, which allows CSOs, social entrepreneurs, and the private sector to share resources, but also enables individual citizens to donate their skills to campaigns and, and movements in exchange for digital credits. Um, and similarly, we're exploring innovative approaches to financing and fundraising in South Asia and the Middle East. So there are unfortunately no easy answers to Lana's question on how both to sustain partner CSOs and respond to our internal regulations. But we in the donor community are learning that in order to meet the needs of the civil society sector who must increasingly be agile and resilient, especially in restrictive and closing spaces, we must ourselves also become adaptive and willing to experiment with new and different ways of doing things. As Charles Van Dyke mentioned in his report, the relationship between donors and particularly civil society in the Global South needs to shift in order to guarantee its sustainability. I think this is in direct agreement with Administrator Green's vision of driving ourselves out of a job. That through improvements to our internal processes, whether it's in program design, procurement, monitoring and evaluation and learning, as well as investing in innovative programmatic approaches, we can and must help reframe the old-fashioned donor CSO paradigm from one oriented primarily around donor demands and upward accountability to one of collaboration and true partnership and to two-way mutual accountability. Well, thank you very much for this overview and very intense, like it's very interesting to see that the donor community is willing to experiment in various issues. Since I've got you here, Mariam, I would like to, to have a quick follow-up. Um, you mentioned about the network, the viable network, and this is um, civil society trying to learn from each other. To what extent that is a, you can consider it as a success story to respond to the restrictions and closing civic space? Yeah, I think that the strength and viability and breadth of that network in particular is one of its greatest successes, and it's because of the design process itself. We have had actors who have been a part of the process for years now, completely on a volunteer basis, and um, have been engaged without the promise of any donor funding, really because they believe in the overarching mission and that they're contributing to something that ultimately is gonna benefit not just themselves or their organizations, but the sector at large. So because of that commitment, there is deep local ownership and because of that, we are very hopeful that this initiative is going to be sustainable. And the benefit, again, of the network itself is not just that we have, that the local CSO actors have come together 
you know, within a particular country, but the networks are countrywide as well as intra-regional as well as inter-regional. So it's fascinating to see, you know, the Latin American and Caribbean hub with their um, sharing economy platform now have um, uh, CSO actors in the Middle East and Central Asia, for example, that are picking that up and trying to scale it up in their particular regions. So especially when you're dealing with issues of closing civic space, making those connections within regions and again across regions is, is, is almost essential in creating um, viability and the potential for long-term sustainability because you're again making connections between closing to open to closed spaces and you know, it's providing a platform for partnerships and allies that then are gonna be able to endure the test of time. Monica, can I add something on private philanthropy? Because I have seen over at least the past five, six, seven, eight years, however long we've been working on this, there has been a lot of questioning and grappling within the donor community, both governmental and the private philanthropy community, about what to do about closing space, and also some reckoning in terms of how have donor um, funding models created the crisis that we currently find ourselves in. So in addition to what USAID and other government donors are doing, there are funders like the Ford Foundation that have made a commitment to providing more core support and longer term support to civil society organizations, recognizing that the unpredictable short term cycles make civil society organizations very vulnerable to these kinds of ups and downs, but also mean that oftentimes the donor more than sort of the problems that within the country is dictating the nature of their activities. Other donors have invested in co-creation or are trying to streamline the process of applying for funds by adopting things like a statement of interest and then sort of, you know, like reducing the number of organizations that they then invite to submit a full, a full proposal so that organizations don't go through the whole process of creating, you know, a 20 page proposal just to find that the donor is not at all interested in that idea. And then the final thing I'll say is, um, it has been inspiring to see a lot of the pl private philanthropies come together and create this network, the Funders Initiative for Closing Space, where together they're trying to figure out how do they change the way that they do business in order to better support civil society and help human rights organizations in particular and social justice organizations sort of weather the current storm. Um, but on that, I just I want to, to, to ask you, all of you, um, to what extent the whole issue of the diversifying of funding will divert the organization from their actual mandate and vision, um, uh, putting them into burdens or following the reporting and the other uh, evaluation mechanism. So let me start with you, Ed, on this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting the way you framed the question because I would, my my thoughts were going slightly elsewhere, but I'll I, I think I can uh, bridge from where you started. Um, it was very interesting to me listening to Miriam talk about all the innovations taking place in USAID practices and policies, which, if I had to sum it up, I would say are uh, at least uh, trying to move the whole culture of development from one where there's priorities set by a donor about some changes that need to take place and then accountability to that donor 
from the grant recipients for how far they get to one of uh, experimentation, which is a word that Miriam used a couple of times. So the whole premise of the question about uh, diversification of funds and donors and so on, uh, the way I look at it, maybe it's not for the donors to really uh, be concerned with. It's for the uh, subjects of, the objects of their uh, grants to worry about. Where do they want to get funds from? And those trends that are uh, still there on my last slide, those are going to be the driving forces for that most likely. And so the question that I think the development community needs to focus on the most are the kind of questions that Miriam has been summarizing USAID thinking on. Um, um, but um, I think they need to be more radical, most likely, mm -hmm. because I know there are always structural constraints in any institution, especially one as big as USAID, and we're hearing about some of the ways that uh, USAID must be pushing the edges. But um, that's not gonna meet up with these trends uh, mm -hmm. immediately. Uh, that's one side moving, they're, they're moving together maybe a little bit. Well, USAID is moving towards these trends, let's put it that way. But those trends have a huge amount of force. And they're not, those people, people who are, uh, start, are involved in startups now who care about the social needs of their context and are just looking for the right uh, solution to their problem and are looking at these opportunities, they're not thinking, well, how do I do that and also have a diverse set of grants from a diverse set of institutions? because that would be lead to chaos. So I think the big problem to solve for the development community is how can we support this? What's the, there, there's been a, I'll be finished in one second, there's been a, a 20 or 30 year uh, strategy globally of creating a whole professional class of people who know what M&E even means all around the world. Uh, those are not necessarily the same people who are doing this. So how do we join this up together? is my question. So I think there's um, two organizations that I profile in the report that illustrate some of the challenges of applying some of these different models. Um, so one is an organization in Brazil that has tried to build domestic constituencies for their work and has tried to do um, fundraising of small donations from a certain segment of society that they identified through their survey work was most likely to contribute to human rights organizations. And I think that was like women between 30 and 35. Um, however, reaching out to those women and cultivating them as donors is so much work, and the yield is very minimal. So, you know, there's that saying, is the, what is the juice worth the squeeze? It's a lot of squeeze um, <laughs> with uncertain returns, and that whole process does divert their attention from doing the work that they do. Um, I think the other challenge for that organization is some human rights organizations do things that aren't necessarily popular. So this particular organization that I'm talking about defends the rights of people who are accused of crimes to get representation um, and to have a fair trial um, and due process. That's not necessarily a popular sentiment within Brazil. Some people think that they're too concerned with the rights of criminals and sort of just the lowest form of society when they should be much more concerned about sort of the broader uh, population and victims of these crimes. So sometimes it might be hard to convince people to support things that aren't necessarily popular. I think the other example from Pakistan um, is illustrative of some of the challenges of the market-driven model. So there's an organization that initially started out as a normal um, nonprofit organization getting grants from foreign donors. 
And what they were trying to do was teach tolerance and sort of teach um, Pakistani students to view their history through a more inclusive lens. Well, that wasn't a very popular idea with the government, and so they started receiving a lot of pressure. What they ended up doing was converting their model to a business model where basically they developed a curriculum that was about teaching tolerance, and they sold it to private schools. And parents would pay for their students to be able to participate in this six-week-long program in order to get this curriculum. But only the people could that could pay could benefit from this curriculum. So at the time, they're only in private schools. So again, it's a limitation um, to those who can pay for those types of services. And are you? So just to add on, I mean, those were great points. Um, so in terms of Lana's question of the implications of diversifying funding potentially in a negative way in terms of decreasing the legitimacy of CSOs or increasing uh, constraints for them around m and &E, et cetera, um, I would say that you know CSOs really, when you think about diversification, it has to be beyond just um, grant dependencies, right? So be, thinking beyond just um, various donors, bilateral or, or even private philanthropic foundations, but, um, but even broader than that in terms of some of the different models that Shannon describes in her report. So the membership-based uh, model, community-funded organizations, you know, market-driven organizations, but unfortunately, and many times in the context of closing civic spaces, because of actual um, uh, laws against income generation, for example, all three of these would immediately be out of, out of the question, right? You can't even do any of those options. So then you become back donor dependent because those are the only streams of funding if you don't have a foreign funding law. If you do, then you just have the local government, which probably has very uh, small amounts of funding going to human rights-based organizations. So then you have to be much more innovative. And that's what I was driving at and with regards to the various ways that CSOs are, are thinking outside of the box and really trying to be innovative with regards to being self-reliant and not having to be dependent on even the local communities or constituencies, let alone donors. And you know, potentially creating, for example, um, uh, uh, digital platforms to connect with one another and swap services so you don't have to have any sorts of funding coming in to actually um, create um, a campaign and or to do you know, some sort of service provision. Um, so there's, there are various creative ways that are being piloted around the world. Those are obviously not going to replace donor funding by any means, but I think that when you think about diversifying funding, it just really has to think of all of those different potential connection nodes and how to you know, sample and try out different um, modalities with the hopes that um, as the environment changes and fluctuates, you can keep up with that and at all times have some means of income coming in. Um, and it might not be, you know, many times it's not going to be static. And then in terms of um, the point about, um, you know, USAID, we're doing, hopefully we're going in the right direction, but obviously it's a huge organization and it's not gonna be as fast as, as the rate of closing civic space. Um, I can tell you that I joined a, a donor coordination meeting about a year and a half ago and there were about 30 different donors there, and everyone is talking about co-creation, co-design, closing civic space. Everyone is on the same um, you know, bandwidth, except that the US government is, is actually at the forefront, and people, you know, other um, uh, donors, bilateral donors, were very eager to catch up, but completely true that this is gonna take time, and that it's something beyond just process changes. It is a deep organizational um, shift in, in the kind of mentality of how we do develop and it's doing development differently. Yeah. Well, I think here it's, uh, uh, that's probably a good place to open the floor to Q&A. Um, my colleagues will circulate with the microphone. 
uh, please introduce yourself and affiliation and please um, have a concise question, please. There's here. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Amira Woods. Um, and I have two questions. I hope it's okay. The first is to the authors of the report. I guess I'm wondering if you've touched on particularly the U.S. and <laughs> the um, closing space here uh, in light of especially the legal pressures on Greenpeace and environmental justice activists and human rights organizations here in the U.S. I guess uh, I'm really concerned about these slap suits and, and what that means now and going into the future. Um, and uh, I, so I'll leave it at that. But the second uh, question is more a concern to USAID, uh, particularly uh, in a context where USAID as a powerful donor is participating in the closing of the political space on issues of the global gag rule and, and uh, all the issues around particularly uh, women's organizations around the world. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot we can touch on on that, but it seems a bit disingenuous to hear about all this uh, experimentation, innovation. I'm coming from the tech sector and philanthropy, so I, I understand it's, it's sexy, but uh, it just seems a bit uh, inconsistent with the reality of what's going on in a lot of countries around the world. Thank you. Is there a question here, please? We'll take a, couple, a group mm -hmm. of three questions okay. and then... That's why I needed pens. <laughs> yeah. um, good afternoon. My name is Rosemary Segero. I'm the president of an organization called Hope for Tomorrow and a company called Segero's International Group. Thank you so much for your presentation. I just wanted to know uh, the relationship between we have international organization, local organization, community-based organization, the government, and the big guys who are the foundation. So who are the civil societies? <laughs> and because uh, we're looking at money, everybody here is talking about money. We cannot try to partnership or sustainable. There's something everybody wants, which is money. So who are the civil society? And who is playing what? And who is, which partners, USID and you guys? So where's the partnership before even we come to sustainability? There is something missing in the middle there, which is relationship, partnership, before we go to sustainability. Somebody is having the money, they are not sharing with the small CPOs who do much work on the ground more than anybody else and the civil society. So how do we partner and okay. how the sustainability comes in so that we can all give the service to the human rights. It's not only human rights. Women in Africa wants to be empowered. Women here wants to be yeah, empowered. Sure. Youth, conflicts and violence. So how is the partnership between all of us and how do we work together to make it happen? Not just sustainability. Thank you. Sure. Um, any other question? Uh, please, yes. The lady of, uh, here, and then we come. Yeah. Sorry, my name is Heidi Ramwoudz. Um I worked for the former UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Association and Assembly, Maina Kiai, and so we worked a lot on this issue. I just want to follow up on these lapsuits to broaden that question a little bit about the private sector, because we've been hearing a lot about governance, uh, both you know, from a donor perspective and, and the national uh, authorities, but what about the role of the private sector um, in closing space, and what that, does that mean for sustainability? Of course, slap suits in the US, but maybe also in other countries. Thank you. Okay. Um, let's start with a question on closing civic space here in the US. 
whatever they offer, and then we go yeah. to. So I will try to answer the first and the last together a little bit. Um, so our reports, this particular report was not an analysis of closing space, the drivers of closing space um, in any particular environment. So we didn't go in depth about the US or the role of the private sector. ICON has developed products um, in addition to these ones that do provide more analysis about what is happening and why. Um, for example, we have, me, formerly, <laughs> I'm still, I, I left only a month ago, so. Um, ICON has been doing research um, on the relationship between counterterrorism and closing space for civil society. And what we found was that in a lot of um, well-established democracies, there has been a significant decline um, or erosion of the enabling environment for civil society for reasons surrounding counterterrorism, concerns about national security, but also things about sovereignty, the role of the private sector, wanting to, uh, wanting the government wanting to project that it was doing everything that it could to grow the economy, um, and blaming civil society organizations and sort of civic activists more broadly for trying to undermine economic growth. So while the reports that we're talking about today don't get into those issues in any depth, previous reports do, and a forthcoming report will. Okay, uh, so I'll take a stab maybe at integrating all three questions. Um, uh, I won't spend a lot of time on the US just to build on Shannon's point. Uh, uh, I am very concerned about what's going on in the US also. Um, and I do see it as driven by some of the same trends which are in fact global in nature. However, the context is a little bit different and one thing that I'm very pleased to see in the last uh, year or so is social movements seem to be alive and well, thankfully. And they are getting resourced in various ways which are very context dependent. So um, I'm not really too focused on, I'm personally not too focused on what needs to be done there, although a lot of other people are. Um, but. In the rest of the world, I think that essentially these drivers are a product of, uh, of, global, of economic globalization. That's, I think, the, there are many drivers and we could have a long analysis and uh, Shannon and I certainly have had many conversations <laughs> like that in the past. We don't have time for it now. There are many, many drivers, but if you have to boil it down to a word, I think it has to do with the nature of globalization. And uh, for a period of time, globalization was driving the development of civil society now globalization seems to be driving some real significant threats and challenges. Um, and uh, leading to the last question, uh, it leaves one wondering where do we look for solutions from? We can, get, we can talk about the specific practices of a donor and so on. That's all very, very important. But if you think about it really big picture strategically, uh, where are the solutions from? I don't really know. But one observation I'll make is that while democratization seems to be heading in a backwards direction from what I was, what, what I was uh, assuming would be the case 20 years ago, uh, market economy is not. So somehow the business sector is alive and well. And uh, the business sector can be both a, a threat as well as a support for civil society. Um, and the real challenge is to figure out how do we try to minimize the threat that's been worked on for a while already, 
and a new challenge, which not too many people are thinking about very much, but some are starting to, is how can business be a support? What's, and, and what do we need, you know, what, uh, for those of us outside the business community, what do we need to do to try to facilitate more support? And that's a very big question. Um, so for the question around the, um, where are the partnerships, especially for the smaller local CSOs, um, so, you know, as I mentioned, we had obviously two different um, USA directives focused specifically on this with US, the USA Forward Initiative and local solutions. But what we realized from our work um, uh, alongside those two were that, you know, it's not just about financial sustainability. We can obviously hit certain targets and markers with regards to the amounts of funding that we're driving towards directly um, local CSOs and not going through intermediary INGO organizations. But at the end of the day, that's not creating sustainability on its own because we're talking about a much bigger landscape that's much broader than just financial viability and financial sustainability. So um, I think getting at the systems approach, you know, what are the implications for um, how some of the programs then are able to deliver other types of support to these local CSO actors, whether it's organizational capacity, um, improvements to the legal enabling environment, all of these other different factors. As I mentioned, the CSOSI, for example, covers seven different dimensions, and financial viability is one of those seven. So looking at those other six criteria and seeing how local CSOs are impacted by that. And then additionally, we're obviously making added efforts to try to bring the voices of those local actors um, into the picture in a space that otherwise wasn't necessarily there as directive and as um, in a one-to-one -one kind of um, uh, interface with, with donors, right? Because we usually, in the past, have tended to go through intermediary organizations who then subgrant to local CSOs, but through the co-creation, co-design processes, we've been able to bring those local CSOs directly to the table to hear from them, you know, what are the challenges at hand, what are the potential solutions, how can we drive at those, um, uh, at those solutions together, um, working together again across those various um, uh, networks and sub-regional networks. So, so broadly, I mean, there's many different threads of work, but it, it, it's just, you know, it has to be broader than just financial sustainability. And then in terms of the role of the private sector in closing space, that's certainly an issue that we've been um, um, looking at. And um, I guess for the sake of this conversation, I won't get into the closing space aspects, but um, when we are talking about, um, you know, collaborative partnerships, we are thinking about some of the good actors in the private sector space, right? So each country is context and, and um, each uh, closing space is country and context specific. So you have to really kind of evaluate it at that level and you might have certain private sector actors who are working towards nefarious purposes or because they're aligned with the host government or maybe working in conjunction with them to close space. But then you might have other actors who can actually serve as advocates um, and as allies. And so it's important to, to kind of fully uh, to look at the private sector space in that lens as well. And then I didn't really understand the question around USAID closing civic space globally. Um, I'm, I hope that's not done, being done intentionally anywhere in the world and maybe what What's being referenced is, you know, secondary or tertiary implications of some of these donor dependency models, where um, through that thread, perhaps, I, I just didn't understand that. I'm sorry. She's talking about like would, the global would you, gag order. The what? The global mm -hmm. gag order. Okay. Uh, yeah. Stuff in other sectors, like not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I see. Okay. So that is an excellent question. And um, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I'm not the right person to answer that question. I think that um, that's, that's a question definitely for someone, um, uh, perhaps uh, 
who is at a higher level than me to respond to. <laughs> um, can we have an, the mic here for the gentleman? Hi, thank you. <clears throat> yeah. Hi, my name is Giorgio Martinez and I am from the 3IE Impact. Um, I have two questions, I will try to be brief. The first question is, I was wondering what kind of com competitive advantages can civil society organizations acquire in the, in the transition from being a movement to that pathway of sustainability? Another question is about the leadership, is because to what extent leadership in civil society can contribute to that concept of sustainability and also harnessing the multi-stakeholder partnerships that usually donors or the international community is concerning between private sector, public sector, academia, and non-for-profits non as well. Thank you. Do you want to answer Did the question? I, I got the first, first one. Okay. Do you want to do the second one? Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's interesting you're asking about comparative advantage, I think, from shifting from a social movement to a more professionalized organization. I think there are pros and cons. So someone I interviewed at some point about closing space said, as soon as you hire professional staff and start paying people to do this work, that's the moment you're done because you're sort of, um, marketizing what is meant to be sort of a social cause or a volunteer effort. Um, and so some people think that once you sort of make that shift to a more professional organization, that you're kind of sapping the organization of the passion and the energy um, that it had when it was a social movement. I think other people would say that social movements are very good at creating a lot of um, mobilization and putting bottom-up pressure on actors to change, but oftentimes you have rivalries within social movements in terms of who is leading it and what exactly are they trying to change and how and what are you know the priorities that can oftentimes undermine a social movement because there isn't a meeting of the minds when it comes to the priority of the movement. So what professionalizing the movement does then is help give it more focus and direction they can be more strategic about the way that they're trying to do advocacy. Um, I wrote in the report that I think one of the problems is that it's not either or. What I would like to see is professional organizations reaching out much more to social movements and seeing where there might be synergy in the sense that what social movements bring is some of that bottom-up pressure, that constituency for change that a lot of professional organizations are missing and what the professional organization brings to the social movement is expertise, know-how, international networks, um, focus and prioritization, perhaps um, entry points into the key decision makers um, who are actually able to influence that change. Yeah, so <clears throat> the question of leadership, I, th yeah. I think this is a really, really important uh, hidden problem. Uh, is the question of leadership in all these issues that we're talking about because um, because of the problem that we alluded to earlier that it's hard for an organization to change. And so uh, breaking that down a little bit, uh, I think there's at least uh, three different categories of NGOs that I would first have to divide out from each other before I can even think about it clearly. But there are the, you know, the brand new organizations that uh, someone in their late 20s or early 30s is, is 
initiating now, like a startup or something. And it's easy for that leader because they can do the same uh, kind of uh, fairly self-evident analysis I did, see where the opportunities are and start to leverage them and create something new. Uh, that's the easy case. The much harder, but in many ways more important because they're so dominant uh, case, are the existing strong organizations that operate nationally and locally. And uh, even more difficult, the large international NGOs that in many ways have been intermediaries for a locally-based civil society, which may get to the question we heard, may start to answer the question that's gone unanswered so far, because I think there was, uh, I think the, the question was, was probably premised on these very large, uh, at least it made me think about these very large NGOs. And uh, the, the, that's the hardest case. So the hardest case is the large NGOs, which tra traditionally have been intermediaries for uh, in-between donors and locally-based civil society, and who have been under pressure for much longer than, uh, than uh, policy people have been worrying about closing space. They've been under pressure for years now, for maybe a decade, or it's certainly in the last five or six years, they've been under tremendous pressure because the very nature of globalization uh, makes it harder for them to, uh, to justify their need, their necessity. There's a tendency to think that, why do I need an intermediary to validate someone locally who I could just send an email to? So this is just something that, that's kind of an, an observation that, that starts to become obvious to a lot of people. And it's put a lot of pressure on the very largest NGOs who are all thinking about where, what leader, what, what's their role? What is their leadership role? First of all, of the organization itself, which, is, which thinks of itself as being a leader in global civil society, and then even more directly or more, more concretely, the CEO of that large NGO, which, which, which has to lead the organization to make changes that they all think they need but don't know how to do. So I think leadership, I don't have an answer, but I think that I, I'm glad that you asked the question because I think leadership is a really a, a hidden issue if we think about civil society as it exists. It's a lot easier for me to think about where the growth is gonna be. It's very hard for me to think about where, how are we going to get the leadership to change the existing civil society? There's a great book on this called The Hedgehog and the Beetle. Exactly. Um, I'm doing all kinds of plugs today, but it talks about the pressure on intermediary service organizations and talks about sort of the failure to anticipate major change in the sector has left many uh, organizations and many uh, businesses behind whereas other leaders have been able to anticipate that change, get ahead of the curve, and adapt before it's too late. So it's really interesting thinking about it. And there's a bunch of comparisons to the private sector, like businesses have, that have recognized disruption and have been able to get out in front of it versus the ones that have buried their head a little bit and just kept doing things the way that they were doing them and then got left behind. Well, we have time for one last burning question. Um, hello, Lars Benson with the uh, Center for International Private Enterprise. So I know Shannon's talked about this a little bit, but I would actually like to hear maybe three examples of sustainable organizations and why they're sustainable and perhaps focusing on different areas. Thanks. I, 
how we start with Mariam or yeah, we're all looking at Mariam. Is she ready? One of our partners. Yeah. I, I can jump in. If you, you go want. ahead. Yeah, yeah. I'll go uh, after you. Well, maybe we can divide it up a little bit. I'll just start with one that comes to mind immediately. Um, uh, maybe two, two. And uh, these, these are, uh, I have to say, these are both new things, so I can't say that they're sustainable, but they illustrate kind of the theory I was laying out earlier. So uh, one example in terms of a markets-based organization, to use Shannon's terminology, um, would be uh, uh, an organization called Fair Employment Agency in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. uh, which was set up in order to try to, um, uh, uh, I wouldn't say eliminate, but reduce uh, the abuses that come from domestic trafficking in the uh, labor market for domestic helpers in Hong Kong. And uh, they came up with a commercial model which, involved, which was based on a fair trade metaphor that if they, uh, uh, first of all, actually they, they, in addition to fair trade, uh, the first thing I'll say is they uh, did an analysis of what the core problem was. And one of the, and their main conclusion was a core problem in the whole uh, phenomenon was that women who were seeking employment from the Philippines or Indonesia and Hong Kong were paying a fee to an agency in their home country and then were hit with an unexpected fee when they arrived in Hong Kong with the partner agency. And uh, they didn't have the money for it, so they would get a loan from the local agency, they would lose their passport as collateral for the loan, and uh, they would be in a very vulnerable state, and then in some cases, many horrible abusive things would happen. In many cases, ordinary labor abuses would also happen. So they identified that as the problem to solve, and then they set up a business model where they wouldn't charge a fee to the employee. employee. I, I, I suppose they charged a higher fee to the employer. That's this, this fair trade concept. And they would be very transparent about it, and uh, the people who employed uh, uh, domestic helpers through this agency could feel good about themselves even while they pay a little bit more. So that's, and maybe I'll stop there because I took up a lot of air time with that one example. So I'll just leave it at that. So there's a bunch of examples in the report. Um, in terms of membership organizations, the, AAR, the AARP mm -hmm. is fantastically sustainable in the sense that they have developed products and services for their members that their members find of value. They pay their dues and that allows the AARP to do tremendous advocacy um, in the corridors of power. So that's one example. There's a couple examples of market-driven organizations. Um, the Al-Nadim Center for Egypt. Victims of Torture in Egypt. Um, they get fees for um, some of the services that they provide, but in return, they funnel those fees back into their nonprofit organization so that they can provide services um, to women and other victims of torture. Um, in Jordan, a similar organization has a lot of capacity on communications. Um, that just happens to be an expertise of theirs. So they provide technical assistance to other organizations and to governmental agencies. Um, they collect fees for providing those communication services and they pump those back into the organization. And probably the one that is most famous um, is Grameen Bank, where, again, it's considered to be a social enterprise where they make you know, impact investments, basically, in people's small businesses. Most of those businesses yield returns. They funnel that money back into their lending um, and have been able to 
reach hundreds of thousands of people and lift them out of poverty through that model. And I mean, it's hard for you know USAID, for example, to comment on um, a successful example of a partner organization with regards to sustainability because unfortunately one of the negatives of our funding thus far has been that it's usually short-term funding, right? It's about three to five years and that's not really um, uh, ample time to have um, a sustainability plan that goes through its full cycle with regards to not just launch but actual implementation, lessons learned, success, and then kind of the feedback loop. What we do, obviously, and we're trying to do more of, I think we haven't done as well in the past, is trying to encourage and sometimes um, request you know, to have sustainability models that are not only thought about conceptually, but actually start in the initial years of programming. So we're, th we're not in year five and just then thinking about a sustainability plan for the program. But ultimately, the most um, successful examples of sustainability models are obviously, with everything we just talked about, um, ones that are generated um, through uh, um, inherently through the local organization and it's not top-down, right? So we don't want to necessarily have an example of somewhere where we as donors have put forward um, ideas and options for a sustainability plan for a local partner and then, you know, we, we have the pre uh, conception that we think that that's a successful model. It really should be something that, is that, that actually outlives the project and not just that project but, but is something that is going to provide benefit for the organization as a whole and it's looking at those various aspects of not just finding alternative donors but also income generation working with the private sector etc so um, so there are you know examples I can think of but of course the most successful ones are not a direct correlation with USAID funding resulting in a sustainable CSO it would be that you know through our funding um, we were able to implement certain types of uh, services and activities and hopefully create an ample environment that um, helped to um, allow um, sustainability to, you know, to, that, that nurtured an environment for sustainability for that local um, CSO through some of the things that I mentioned in terms of being more flexible and allowing for more space for the local CSOs to experiment and pilot and test things that perhaps haven't been tested before, not being um, pushed down with certain um, uh, demands with regards to you know, indicators and numbers that may be unrealistic. So basically allowing space for sustainability to, 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 um, to grow and, and to prosper. Well, I think with these good stories and good examples, um, it's a good place to end up our today um, conversation. Thank you very much. Please uh, join me in thanking uh, Ed, Shannon, and Mariam for this um, very useful conversation on rethinking sustainability of civil society. Thank you very much for joining us today.